is Jonathan Olson. Jonathan is the managing partner at Ivy Tree Advisors, where he consults to companies around strategy, commercialization, and product launch. He's, he's an investor with NextGen Venture Partners, and you can follow him at twitter.com slash John Olson. Um, Jonathan is inspired to fix big problems in health, pharma, and finance using technology and new business models. He's an executive team leader with deep experience in commercialization, team leadership, and partnership development in pharma and health technology. He spent 20 years in pharma, health, and technology in global Fortune 50 and high growth companies. He lives in Boston and his clients are in the US and global. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice and we are not investment advisors. Today's topic is solving the commercialization riddle, the trade-offs and steps needed for commercialization and how to create a winning plan. First off, here's the format for this investor talk. We'll talk for uh, the, sh the show's expected length is an hour and a half. After that, uh, uh, in the first half, uh, John and I will be talking about um, water cooler talk, news, macro environment, um, uh, other, other issues. In the second half, uh, we will have uh, Jonathan talk about his topic of expertise, which is uh, commercializing products uh, in, in pharma and healthcare. So to register, um, uh, so uh, you may be visiting the page of this, of this uh, show. It's best to do that while registered. You can visit callin.com to register or the Callin Social Podcasting app in your app store to register. Um, and if you do that, then you can participate in the room chat uh, and uh, be a caller as well. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. And why don't you introduce yourself a little more? Sure, happy to. So I am managing partner at Ivy Tree Advisors. We are a consultancy that focuses on digital health as well as incumbents that purchase digital health. Uh, we do market entry strategy, commercialization, which includes business development, alliances, and forecasting, as well as product launch and management. We have a network of 30 independent consultants who we routinely work with in teams of two or three based on their expertise, helping these health tech ventures and also the likes of pharmas and payers that are trying to partner on innovation. A um, little bit of background on myself. I uh, had biology training undergrad at Stanford, was very involved in human genome related things, then went to Deloitte Consulting uh, where I learned the big business aspect of uh, what I do now. And then I have since uh, turned around a market research company, started and exited a social networking company, got my MBA at NYU, uh, spent uh, three and a half years at Pfizer and their leadership rotational program uh, across six departments and nine projects over that time period, ultimately landing in digital strategy. Uh, helped them to launch the first um, digitally enabled clinical trial, and then also uh, helped business development and patients like me to do their first data sale and behavioral health data. Then I became chief commercial officer of a telesite company. Then I founded Ivy Tree Advisors, uh, which I've been doing for the past seven plus years, and also have been an investor in a number of different successful um, digital health startups. So pleased to be here today. That's great. Well. Why don't we start off with macro news? As I like to say, two years ago, um, I think 
the innovation economy, young company leaders gratefully didn't have to think about this. And today, unfortunately, it's one of the more pressing issues. Um, so recent news is that uh, inflation fears are cooling. On July 12th, the BLS announced um, a, um, uh, a, uh, a CPI print of an increase of just 0.2% for June. That's low, and that was also lower than expected. Uh, and so that is good news for the innovation economy. And it's good news because if inflation is high, the Fed's going to fight it. The Fed's going to fight it by raising rates. Raising rates is terrible for uh, for growth companies with with negative earnings, which is which is what innovation economy companies are. Uh, and so, um, uh, hanging over this is this belief that the Fed could raise rates twice in the next six months or so, and that that would also be bad for the innovation economy. But if inflation is coming in lower than expected, then we, we might see um, the Fed either raise a de minimis amount or not raise, which I think I think the Fed is expecting. I'm sorry. I think the market's expecting the Fed to raise twice at 25 basis points each. And th with this news, we could see the Fed be come in at that level or be more restrained, but probably it won't come in above that level. Uh, and that's good news for the innovation economy. And I'm also predicting that investors uh, are going to get back in the saddle sooner than expected. And so this is consistent with that thesis of mine. So Jonathan, any, any thoughts on uh, inflation news? Yeah. So today at uh, around two o'clock, two thirty, I think is the end of the, the press conference, Powell announced that he is uh, raising a quarter point. Um, now to your point, uh, does that mean that we have two raises of a quarter point left or just one raise of a quarter point left? Uh, question mark. But I think uh, whatever that terminal rate is, we're getting very close to the end of that terminal rate. I think that's generally the, the feeling people have. So the real question for me is how long they will keep that uh, terminal uh, interest rate going to continue to break the economy uh, versus uh, beginning to let uh, off of the the break and get us back to uh, rates that are closer to what they'd like to see. That, that's great. Um, so another view I have and I've, I've had on this show for a while is that we're going to see the opening of the IPO window, which is currently closed sooner than expected. Um, and uh, and that also seems to be coming true, which is great news. So we have Bank of America cited in the Wall Street Journal this week. Um, it called the opening of the IPO window. That's the first bank I've seen declaring it to be open. It's been nearly closed or entirely closed for most companies for, um, for over six quarters now. Um, and they cited uh, Oddity Tech having a successful flotation. So that's great. Um, and the article also cited uh, ARM, uh, the UK chip manufacturer, expects to go public in September with a valuation at over 50 billion. And it's trying to take advantage of the AI wave because AI software uses ARM uh, uh, chips. Uh, so, um, and we also had the story of Cava, the Mediterranean food restaurant oversubscribed and up 117%. That's not in tech or healthcare, but nevertheless, it shows an opening of, of the market. And we, we would then want to see that reinforced with tech and healthcare being successful. We also saw Kenview IPO in May and go up and stay up. All of that, you know, uh, good. And then also Instacart is rumored to be planning an IPO. So that would be another big IPO in tech. And so, uh, so Jonathan, what, what do you think? Do you think that the IPO window is open like Bank of America 
is calling or do you think that, uh, uh, you know, and what's key about that is that it causes unicorns in health tech and their boards to all schedule try to go out if the IPO window is really open. That, and, that, and that could mean six months from now. So that could mean winter uh, that we see a bunch of health tech IPOs. So, Jonathan, any, do you have any sense as to whether we can make an early call of the IPO window opening? Yeah, it's a very good point, Steve. It's very astute of you to say so. So, you know, it takes a while to go through the IPO process, not less than six months, sometimes a year. You've got to write an S-1. It's a very involved process. You have to have public disclosures. So generally speaking, if you were looking at potentially doing a uh, IPO in the next six months to a year, you'd probably be having these conversations now. Uh, and, and finding a timeline, and then the, the exact timing of that would really then depend on, on the market. So, you know, I, I think this is good uh, that the window may be opening here. Um, we haven't seen the full breaks applied yet. We may have another six months at uh, the current interest rates, and, and there may be more carnage to come. So it's certainly volatile, but I think there's opportunity here. When you look at mom and pop, you're seeing a lot of exiting of money market funds and, and putting money back into uh, a bit of growth, uh, so that's great. Um, I think that uh, it, it, if you look at the market though, the S&P and the NASDAQ being up, it's really happened because of very specific names like NVIDIA that are winners out there. So I think the question for a CEO thinking of IPO is, am I in a category that is aligned with where the market is interested in investing? NVIDIA would be a great example, right? Powering AI using their powerful chips. So I, I think that, really depends on what category you're in and if you have other uh, companies like yours that you feel are similar enough that you could uh, receive the same kind of um, investor interest. That's great. Um, so the, the next is, you know, I think this week I'm going to reiterate um, my thesis, which is a more optimistic thesis than the mainstream. So my, my thesis is that we're going to see the IPO window be open in the next two quarters. Um, and we're going to see the uh, venture stage funding environment improve in the next two to three quarters. And I think that the mainstream view is it's gonna be more than four quarters until the venture stage funding environment improves. So that, that's my contrarian call on that. And then I also think we're gonna see an M&A environment, which I would say that the consolidation M&A environment in digital health software companies is, um, is average to slightly below average right now and market analysts have been saying it's gonna it's gonna tick up for a while and it has it has never really ticked up except there was there was one year during the boom um and so i'm also making the call that in the next two to three quarters we'll see the consolidation environment tick up as well with the improved financial environment so i'm sort of reiterating that call um uh, Jonathan, do you, uh, do you, are you like embracing the mainstream thesis on those topics or, or more optimistic or more pessimistic maybe? You know, I, I think there's a difference between everybody and the top one or two in any particular market segment. If your mm -hmm. company is in the top one or two and is uh, one of those potential marquee names, I think that you make the moves that you need to make that are smart. You do so within uh, your enclave of a network to you know, do deals that make sense if you feel that the private market is going to value you better than the public market a year from now. So I think that's a strategic decision that you, know, you have to kind of take the big picture point of view. Yes, there are macros that, uh, that provide some level of risk. That's always the case. But I think 
you know, healthcare is counter-cyclical and we have to look at the micro situation. So the, and the timing of that. So I think if there's match, if there's a match made in heaven and you feel as though that combination is going to help both companies overall, I, I, I think it's probably fine to entertain those discussions early. And I would say the same, even, you know, uh, for the IPO side of things, I mean, it, planning is, is different from executing, but you don't want to be the last one to the party. You'd like to be in line for when the party starts. That's great. And finally, uh, recession fears. So here we have, you know, two months ago, we have Jason Calacanis, uh, a, a journalist and market analyst, uh, calling a Fed that we had already entered a Fed caused recession. So that's the pessimistic view. And then we have some regular observers like Lawrence Summers and Fidelity's chief economist saying that we are ending an, a, an expansionary period and we're beginning, we're at the beginning, but we haven't quite entered a contractionary period that has the chance to be a shallow recession. Um, I'd call that the mainstream view. And then just today, we actually have an aggressive view, which is uh, Jan Hatzius, the chief economist of Goldman Sachs, was quoted in today's Boston Globe saying that uh, we may skip a recession. He puts the chances of a recession in the next 12 months at 20%. Uh, so that, that, that's pretty small uh, in the next year. Um, so I think I'm going to come in on uh, the the Lawrence Summers view that we're we're on the cusp of a possibly shallow recession. That's bad news for the innovation economy because that makes our customers, uh, the, the enterprises that buy our software, it makes them feel poor. Now, in some cases, you're lucky because healthcare can be countercyclical, but it's definitely the case that uh, hospitals are feeling poor, and if they go, we go into a recession, they're going to continue to feel poor. And also, employers buying employer health benefits uh, when we go into a recession, they renegotiate their contract with their employees. They're no longer trying to tempt employees with delicious benefits. Uh, they can cut back a little on those on those health benefits to employees because the labor mobility is not there. Um, so in certain areas, despite the sometimes countercyclical nature of healthcare with respect to the rest of the economy, recessions are still bad. Um, th there's a story that a recession is a great time to start a young company because if you can make it in a recession, you're going to do great during the expansion that follows the recession. And that, that's a nice story for market observers. It's not a great story if you're an entrepreneur uh, because you have to somehow make it through that tough period. So anyway, um, do you, are you going to make a call on, uh, on uh, recession or are we going to see a recession in the next couple of months? Yeah, it, it's tough to know, but I always prepare for the worst and expect the best. So at the end of the day, we're trying to build real businesses here. We want to have real margins. We want to have quality customers. If you're doing that, then you're building something for the long haul. It's going to weather a minor recession, right? So I, I think it's important not to think that the sky is falling and still continue building. And look, when you have a little bit of a slowdown in the buying cycle, that's a great time for strategy to, to really dial in what's working well with the company and also put some longer term um, evaluations in process. And I'm seeing a lot of companies that are still doing that, even though they may have just raised around or are raising around. I think the ones that are keeping their eye on the long term horizon are still doing the work. They may not be hiring as much. They may have had a little bit of layoffs. Um, they may have trimmed some of the product portfolio, but that doesn't mean they've stopped exploring or uh, doubling down on what's working for the company. So I, I would still be uh, uh, generally bullish, but cautious as well. That's great. So next, moving on to a discussion of industry reports. So here, 
John and I are going to talk about any reports that came across our radar in the last week or two um, that we think are important enough to bring to you guys. Uh, and also, I call on our audience, if there's any reports that you saw that you want to mention in the room chat, uh, and John and I can react to that. So two weeks ago, there was the Rock Health report. Everybody waits for and looks to that report. It showed continued weakness in terms of uh, amount of digital health deals, uh, you know, significantly down. Um, interestingly, they also commented that um, that uh, investor tourists are leaving the sector. <laughs> um, so this is uh, like the, the CRM corporate venture fund that decided to get into digital health or uh, that, that, that kind of stuff. And they also talked about a record increase in unnamed rounds. So this is where a company raises uh, $20 million and doesn't name the round. Uh, and this is to disguise weakness uh, because maybe that, you know, they were supposed to raise $30 million. They got the deal done. Congratulations at 20 million. Um, and, but then now they're not going to say what stage it is because they don't want to reveal that it was a small round for that stage. Uh, or, and so, uh, so it, it just shows how hard it is um, uh, and my view actually is, is that it's not weakness. If you're actually getting it done, that's a victory in this market environment. Even if you don't have a top lead investor, maybe you have a corporate venture investor that chose to be a lead this time. It doesn't always lead, but you got it done in a really tough environment. That's a win for me. So Jonathan, uh, any, did you, did you read that report? Do you have any thoughts, uh, any further thoughts on the Rock Health report? Yeah, well, I, I think it's worth everyone taking a look at that. Uh, but, you know, it, it's tough to look at statistics and then say, oh, that's that's what's going to happen to me. I think the most important thing is that you allow for additional time as a CEO to raise money. So if you thought you were going to raise around in six months, give yourself a year. If you thought it was going to be nine months, maybe give yourself 18. Cut the burn rate a little bit there and just see, pump the brakes a bit and then see what you can get. Some people are doing rolling rounds. That's another way of doing it. You have a soft close for half of what you need. Some people are thinking about bridges. So you know, I, I think the key is just to make sure that core operations continue and there's a, there's a healthy P&L and balance sheet aspect to this. Um, and you know, that's gonna make you continue to be appealing uh, to the alternative assets market and uh, the family funds out there that wanna do series B, series C. That's great. Um, so, and I don't, our, for our audience, I don't see them calling out any further reports. I, I think July is gonna be a slow month for industry reports anyway, if, you're, if your goal releasing a report is to grab attention. Um, so now we're moving on to the next category, which is um, tra trade journal news, gen general news. Um, so here, you know, uh, sad to see Bioformis, which has a technology platform um, for, uh, for healthcare and biopharma, um, laid off 120 employees globally. Um, so this is more this is more belt tightening. Belt tightening is a trend we've seen for uh, for six quarters now, and it, it continues. Um, and uh, I think in general, probably CEOs did not belt tighten enough um, early enough. And there's there's still more belt tightening ahead of us. We're probably not even 50% of the way through the belt tightening. And we're going to keep. We're going to continue to see this. Uh, so, Jonathan, any thought on uh, bioformis and belt tightening? Nothing to add there. That sounds on trend. So next is uh, Family First, which sells uh, employers and health plans a technology platform to support caregivers' mental health and well-being. Secured an eleven million dollar Series A. 
RPM Ventures and EOS Venture Partners led the round with participation from Stephen Frum and Wormhole Capital. So this is interesting. This is um, a, a category I have not, it's a relatively new category in selling to uh, the employer digital health benefits budget and the health plan programmatic budget. Um, that is helping caregivers um, who are employees or plan members, supporting them. Um, not a lot of companies in this sector. I'm glad to see they raised money. Um, and what immediately stands out to me here is that RPM Ventures and EOS Venture Partners, these are not prominent mainstream digital health funds. Um, so we're seeing deals get done and very often it's not leading venture funds who are leading. Um, and that is a continuing issue. Lead investors aren't leading. They aren't leading because of uncertainty, uncertainty around interest rates and valuations, uncertainty around their investment theses, uncertainty around chaos going on in their fund and their portfolio. Um, and so we're seeing deals get done and very often we're not seeing a lot be done that are classic digital health deals led by leading mainstream digital health funds. Once again, that's the pattern here. Um, so uh, Jonathan, any, any thoughts on, on this fundraise and the larger picture? Yeah, I think there's two aspects to this. The first is I'm really great to see support for caregivers' mental health. I think that's a really unique value proposition and one where we actually do see as the caregivers are taking care of people with, let's say, Alzheimer's, uh, the caregivers themselves can die before the Alzheimer's patient because of the burden of having to do that work and keep a family together. So I, I think that is a really great um, example of, of a company out there. Uh, I think the other piece is, uh, you know, should we worry that the classic big name funds are not investing, but other second tier VCs maybe? I'm not as concerned about that. If you have a strong value proposition, I, I think that the winds blow. And uh, at the end of the day, the top VCs are still accountable to their LPs. And if their LPs are hesitant and they're hesitant, that's, that's good fiduciary alignment. But I, I do think that um, we have to look at this in a much bigger picture and uh, rounds still have to be raised and the companies are still great companies. Nothing changed uh, vastly if your business didn't change vastly over the past year other than the environment for investors. So I say press on. And I actually talked to a C to a, an entrepreneur recently um, who said that the, he, he is a, you know, he gets a decent number of meetings with digital health VCs. And the first question he asks them is how many deals have you done this year? Um, and uh, a frequent answer is zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, VCs are evaluating you, you're evaluating VCs. That is a, you know, that's a significant, you know, negative um, uh, a piece of due diligence feedback to get uh, because, uh, it means that there's a significant chance they, that you'll spend time with them and they won't invest in you because there's something going on with this fund that has dry powder and they're not investing. Um, so, and, and that often is it's, it's chaos in the background. It's, it's things like, um, you know, it, what I'm hearing is it's things like, you know, number one might be that they are triaging and triaging means that they spend, they stop spending time with their best companies. Those companies will be fine. They stop spending time with their worst companies. Those companies, uh, are not going to make it. And they spend a huge amount of time, 75% or more of their time, helping their middling companies, giving them extra money, helping them uh, hire a top salesperson in a difficult environment, et cetera. Um, uh, that's triaging. Um, they're also discovering that their investment theses 
are upside down, are not working in the current environment. They don't know if they want to continue to make new investments because uh, they don't know what the future valuation levels will be. Um, and then uh, there, some of them are also calling their LPs for, for capital calls and finding their LPs are saying, hey, would you mind just not doing that for a while? Because <laughs> the LPs have their allocations out of whack uh, because right. valuations changed. Uh, so those are some of the um, things that uh, nevertheless, um, venture funds have to put their money to work or return the capital. If they return the capital, then they, they can't collect the management fees and they have trouble raising a next fund. So they're, defi so they're definitely going to put the money to work. <laughs> they're not yeah, going Steve, to return the capital. Steve, so. I'll add something too. I mean, you know, in, in the June timeframe, I had conversations with two VCs and both of them said similarly that they hadn't made an investment in 18 months. But the reason was not because they're concerned uh, about the macro environment. It was actually that the valuations have been very high across the board and especially in digital health uh, in 2021 and 2022. And so as we let air out of the balloon and the valuations come down, I, I think there will be a little bit more appetite. But I do think even despite that, everyone is trying to say, do we see some clear directionality in the marketplace? And because the signals are still a bit mixed, what you have is essentially, am I investing in the right team? Have they made the right moves? Are they in the right market? And do I think long-term people are going to need this because there's a shortage of this? If the answer is yes to all of those questions, then you have something that is kind of like a Warren Buffett-style investment to say, it's an undervalued asset, and I'm going to put money to work it. It's not just going to be momentum, trend investing, where we want to have a piece of it to have a piece of the category. And I think you're not seeing a lot of that investing happening right now. Yeah, and, and also uh, sometimes a, a company has belt tightened. It's given itself a little longer runway. It still needs to raise the next round. Uh, and uh, from new investors, it's not going to get the whole round from prior investors. Um, and uh, then you have a situation where um, the, the CEO you know, may say, I need to raise the money. I need to do things. I need to spend for growth. I need to spend on a sales team. I need to do things to win in my sector. Uh, and so the CEO is willing to take a down round and the CEO will get topped up with stock options in that down round. Meanwhile, there's a venture board member um, who uh, who is betting part of their career on this company um, and they're facing, you know, a possibly more than 50 percent down round, more than more than 70 percent down round, possibly. Um, and uh, they don't want to uh, formalize that. <laughs> They, uh, they don't want to take the actual down round. So they will say things like make your existing funding last for two years, but they don't want to raise new money at a down round because that will hurt their career inside their venture fund and it will hurt the venture funds ability to raise an next fund. Um, so that, so you have a conflict uh, emerges of, of, of differing interests and one's the CEO and one's on the board. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So, and you have venture debt options, you have convertible debt options. I mean, there's a lot of things you can also play with there, but it's not the best situation all around. And I, you know, I think this also drives some demand for, you know, fractional CXOs and perhaps not having to have everybody employed in house, but availing yourself of people that can pull specific deals together or make specific moves on behalf of the company. So you can get a little bit creative with respect to how you deploy your resources. Yeah, that's great. Um, so next, uh, mental health startup Uplift, uh, a tool for providers of mental health, announced it raised $10.7 in Series A funding uh, with new investor Ballast Point Ventures. Uh, that's the partner Matt Rice there. 
uh, led the round with participation from Front Porch Ventures, Kapoor Capital, and their existing uh, investor, B Capital. So this is really interesting um, uh, here. Um, so uh, you, you don't see that many um, mental health tools for professionals. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to see uh, another company in the market helping professionals. Um, and uh, once again, uh, I'm not seeing um, this led by lead digital health investors. This is, uh, you know, uh, uh, this is by, by famous mainstream leading digital health investors. Uh, so this is a, was a difficult round to raise by pulling together a number of investors. Kapoor Capital is known for uh, being a social and mission oriented uh, capital fund. Mitch Kapoor was, I think, uh, the creator of Lotus One, Two, Three, I think. Um, and then B Capital. Uh, this is uh, that guy who was a founder of, I think this is the, the new fund of that guy who was the founder of Facebook, not Mark Zuckerberg, but one of but the head of BizDev at Facebook. Um, and he has decided to get into digital health. And this looks like one of their early investments in digital health. Um, so uh, any thoughts on, uh, uh, on Uplift? But it's consistent with that we're not seeing lead investors lead and we are seeing deals that were probably difficult to put together of other investors uh, uh, for these companies. Yeah, Eduardo Saverin is affiliated with B Capital Group. Look, I, I like to see that venture philanthropy is happening. And I think there's some new models that are starting to happen. Um, you know, I, I'm part of a group called Social Impact Partners that's uh, doing a bit of venture philanthropy. And I, I certainly think that we need to be thinking well ahead of the curve in places like neurodegeneration, mental health, these things are like peas and carrots. They, they go together and they deteriorate together. And frankly, this is the high performance that you need to maintain if you are running any uh, company as an employer, you know, if all of a sudden one of those family members fell ill and you had to turn an employee you have into a caregiver or vice versa, that caregiver started to have mental health deterioration or neurodegeneration, that's particularly problematic. So, you know, I, I think in some respect, it's a venture philanthropy investment. In another respect, I think we're all learning coming out of COVID that we need to protect the core product here and the core product is brain health. So uh, very much aligned with this kind of investment. That's great. So next we'll just get into some valuation issues. So um, first is that digital health public stocks are still down 80% from the boom. That is just an astonishing uh, pull in. Uh, and that those public valuations, which are marked, you know, every minute and every day, um, those are having an impact on private market valuations. Uh, and I like to look at SAS Capital Index, which published its latest numbers for the end of June. And they found mediation, median valuation levels for SAS companies of 7.1 times forward revenue. That's uh, up from the prior month of about 6.7 times forward revenue. And that increase probably is reflecting the NASDAQ rise, which is in turn due to tech optimism. We've been seeing tech optimism for two quarters now um, in the market. Um, and this compares with a long-term median of public SaaS tech companies of eight times forward revenue. So we're getting pretty close to the median. Um, and uh, now high growth SaaS is trading at eight to 12 times, so significant above, significantly above. And this compares to the highs of 2021, um, which was bubbly, uh, where you had uh, multiples of 16, um, where median SaaS was at 16, 
and high growth SaaS was at 30 to 35. So <laughs> are we, so that's, I, I like to see those numbers in comparison to each other. Um, Jonathan, any, thought, any thoughts on valuation and are we ever going to see 30 times forward revenue um, again? You know, Will it be you know? COVID again? I hope not. Um, so look, I, I, I like this tracking any compression of multiples is a good thing to benchmark yourself according to peers. If you're looking at an IPO, you know, there's downsides to being a public market company. You've got to report publicly and there's a lot of, um, momentum investors. And so, you know, I don't, I don't look at a company in telehealth, for example, and say that that's all of a sudden a worthless company. Uh, but if you were just looking at their stock value, you'd say, oh, is telehealth over? Well, a lot of us are still using it. So I, th I think that in the hands of the right investors, uh, you know, y you probably have a gem, but right now it's, you're not getting a premium, I don't think, for being, you know, digital health with this public stocks being down 80% from the boom. That said, we were due for a correction. Uh, and overall, if you're generating cash and you're a valuable asset, you know, that is going to be valued by someone, uh, whether it's private equity or uh, in the M&A market. And so I think it's great to track, but also not get too caught up in it. So then um, the next is that in the public markets, the valuation environment is still risk off. So what risk off means is that you you don't get a premium. In fact, you get a um, you know a a sort of a, a a ding for being earnings negative and high growth potential. Sometimes Wall Street loves that. That's risk on. Other times they don't like it. Currently, it's risk off. Um, we're also seeing in private markets down rounds are happening. It's slow, um, but it's happening. And sometimes you're hearing about some really nasty um, terms like like two times, uh, like pay for play and two times participating preferred. That's enough to take someone off your Christmas card list if you get one of those. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and I think what the innovation economy wants here is we want um, uh, rapidity and volume. We want we don't want we don't like overhangs. Uh, if if values are down, we want to see a lot of deals happen at the new valuation level. Um, that that means liquidity, transparency, markets working. Instead, we're seeing markets stuck with down rounds happening slowly because of conflicts, irrational conflicts like the one I told you about of the board versus the CEO. So we're still working our way through that. That's one of the reasons of the counter thesis of why people think this is going to take four to six quarters uh, before we see some good times again is because of the slowness of this stuff working itself out. Um, and so, and I've also been hearing VCs saying companies are not belt tightening enough yet. Um, and that they're seeing private market companies come in, not wanting to do a down round. That's unrealistic. They should come in. If they need to raise money, they should come in at, at current valuation and be willing to do a down round. Um, and the VCs are, are also, um, they, they officially have a lot of dry powder. They raised a lot of money. They have the right to put it to work, um, but they're saving a, a large amount of their dry powder to deal with the messes of their existing portfolio companies as well. So, any further thoughts on 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 that or on the current on valuation? Yeah, I think there's a pretty big capital overhang happening right now at venture capital firms uh, for those very reasons you stated. And so it's not that they don't have the money, it's they don't have the conviction right now and there's 
does not a feeling that this wind at everyone's back, but I don't think people also know uh, what is going to prevent progress either. Everyone's in this confused, what's, wh which way is everyone else going? And I think you've got to be a bit contrarian as an investor. You got to do your own research and have your own discounted cash flow on a particular company. Tricky part when you're doing that in venture capital is that so much of the value of a company is in the terminal value and then in the growth rate. Obviously, you know, inflation takes a bit off the, the, the uh, assumed growth rate there. Uh, but I think if you're in a category defining or number one or number two in, in your segment, you know, you can make an argument that you are going to be one of the unicorns and it's just a matter of the market correcting. So this is an opportunity for people to get in at this time. So, you know, you've, you've got to sell, obviously, even the investors. And I think the other thing to think about as a CEO is, well, who am I inviting in, in as an investor? Well, I'm, I think it's important to have the cash right now. It's a marriage, right? You're, you really are going to be with these people for years. And so if this is the kind of situation where you take money from an investor you don't feel good about, that's going to be on your board and force you to make decisions that are not in the best long-term interest of the company, that's a head scratcher where you really got to ask yourself the question, are there is this the last, is this the only money available or will there be other options for me? Great. Thanks. So next, moving on to our next topic, which is conferences for the digital health leader. What conferences should I be thinking about and attending? So this is a chance to do mini conference reviews. And for our audience, if you're thinking of attending a conference, um, throw the name of the conference up in the room chat and we'll give a mini review on the conference. Um, so first, I think that most of the conference scene is gone for the rest of the summer. I can't think of any big conferences happening for the rest of the summer. Um, uh, the um, uh, Steve's uh, beach party, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> isn't that in September? Uh, uh, it's my it's uh, it's Fire Festival for Digital Health. Yeah, uh, that's <laughs> good thing it's a local um, drive. Uh, so. Um, uh, so uh, the, the conference scene, I think it's quiet for the summer. One interesting one that is in the summer that's not on most people's radar screens is the Longevity Summit Dublin, August 17th to 20th, which features George Church, Aubrey de Grey, and David Sinclair. So I like to bring up longevity and age tech as an interesting area which overlaps significantly with digital health. This, this conference, I mean, uh, so this is not a conference to go to to raise money, I don't think, uh, or to get partnerships with industry. This is more of a, a sort of a thought leadership conference on the current state of longevity, and it has an overwhelming focus on molecules, not on software. Um, so this is really just uh, for people, for, this is for the, the CEO who wants to stay competitive, the investor who wants to be educated and do the work on a sector or whatever. But I like to call out uh, important events in the, in the longevity field. Um, uh, so that's, uh, uh, and then um, it's, it's not until October, but I'm hearing people saying that they're, you mentioned conviction, uh, uh, John, so they have conviction that they're going to go to health in October. Um, <laughs> so I'm hearing people saying they're going to buy tickets for health early. Health is in October in Las Vegas. Tickets, I think, at a discount are around $2,700 um, and instead of $4,100. And it's October 8th to 11th. Uh, and so, and then they're also talking about um, skipping JP Morgan San Francisco, which is interesting uh, as well. Um, 
And so I like health. Here's what health is for. Number one, VCs attend health. And so if you're a young company leader, you go there, make a list of every VC, write them and say, let's meet. They're in meeting mode. Uh, you have a good chance of getting a meeting. You don't have to fly around the country to get different meetings. You just go there. Uh, whether you're talking to someone already, this is a good chance for an update. You haven't met with them ever. This is a good chance for a first meeting. That's number one. Number two, there's there's innovation executives from big companies. Some some are there. These these, but often an innovation an innovation executive is someone who could be a blocker, who could be a who could be a minor champion. They're usually not a major champion. Some of them are there. Um, Who's not there is oftentimes software buyers, uh, enterprise software buyers, unfortunately, are often not there. Uh, CEOs of, of big consolidators are often not there. And key, um, part, sales, key partners of large enterprises are like, like uh, general managers, brand managers are often not there. Those big companies are sending their innovation execs, but not their general managers of divisions who, who would make a decision there. Uh, and I think that uh, health is, is working on trying to get more and more of those people to come. So that's who I, that, that, that's why I think you go there. Big agenda on fundraise, modest agenda on partnering with, with big companies, chat with their innovation executives. Um, so, uh, uh, so John, any, any thoughts on um, the summer and also uh, the trend of people buying health tickets early and not going to JP Morgan? Yeah, I, I agree with what you've said about the health uh, tickets. I will be attending. I have a question mark around JPM. I did attend JPM last year, um, but I think if HLTH has picked up a lot of the attendance there, if I come out of that, I, I may just decide to stick with that. Um, in terms of other benefits of health, you know, relationships matter in this business, and I think this is a great place to bolster old ones, catch up, and make new ones. I do also notice that uh, even though for the incumbents, those buyers are, are less populous uh, in, in, the, in the later years here, uh, I do see that the C-suite of some of the larger digital health companies are available. So if you're looking to potentially partner with other digital health companies, I think it's a great conference for that. Um, I generally spend uh, the first day and a half catching up on the core themes, but after that, it starts to feel like those themes are very clear. Um, I look for private one-on-ones, dinners with groups of friends, and follow-up meetings with companies in the latter half of the conference. So I think it'll be great. It'll be in person and hopefully a good attendance. I think there was 10,000 attendees last year up from 6,000 the prior year. In large part, that was because of a lot more young companies and VCs. And I have friends who are VCs that literally just met with people for three days straight in 30-minute blocks at the same table. So I think it's a great opportunity for you to do some speed dating on VCs as well. Yeah, that's great. And so uh, interestingly, health was created by venture funds. It was it was it was co-created by Oak Ventures um, uh, and uh, it's gotten a lot of buy in from leading venture funds. Um, and uh, so and it, its focus is is innovation in all of healthcare. Um, so now an interesting thing about J.P. Morgan. So and I think a lot of young leaders in digital health don't really understand J.P. Morgan. Um, but so JP Morgan is the annual healthcare conference of JP Morgan Investment Bank in the Weston St. Francis Hotel in Union Square, San Francisco. And the vast majority of people who go to JP Morgan are never invited by JP Morgan. And in fact, the main people they invite are um, their buy side clients, public and the, the typical person invited 
is the CEO of a public company is invited to speak and the audience is um, is like a, an associate at BlackRock, a portfolio manager or, or an analyst at, at BlackRock or Capital Group or Fidelity or something like that. And the core focus of JP Morgan is public biotech. That's, that, that's the, what most of the content is about at JP Morgan. Now, what's happening is, is that uh, there's a tradition has evolved that the other investment banks went and grabbed up other hotels near the West in St. Francis, like, like, you know, a lot of the rooms at the Hilton or a lot of the rooms at these other hotels in the area, a lot of hotels in that area. Uh, and, uh, and then over time, everybody started going to JP Morgan because um, you could, it was second week of January in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, and they, people just reliably could do a dozen meetings or, or 20 meetings, um, and get those out of the way, uh, especially say meeting geographically undesirable people like someone in Texas or someone in Wisconsin or something. Uh, you could schedule that meeting for JP Morgan. They'd probably be there. You could probably get that meeting done. Um, and then it really took off. And what's happened more recently is people have just grated at the fact that, uh, you know, um, that uh, it's an unattractive venue. You are going between hotels that are nine blocks apart in the rain at JP Morgan, and there's no programming. You didn't buy a ticket and there's no conference programming for you. And you have to scramble to make up your agenda uh, months beforehand and figure out or, or else it's not gonna be worth going. Uh, so there's this, there, so, and finally there's a, the pandemic and also San Francisco's sort of, um, uh, you know, street crime problem have have uh, the, the pandemic caused people to not go to J.P. Morgan, and then J.P. Morgan has to win them back over again to have them come again. And there's no central person doing that because J.P. Morgan doesn't own the other conferences that are going on uh, around it. Uh, and so all of those things have sort of conspired to make it less attractive. That having been said, I will probably still go um, be just because I have friends I meet up with there, um, uh, and. Uh, and I, I think that um, that I'll I'll be hitting people that will not be at health necessarily. So, uh, any, any any final thoughts on uh, any thoughts oh, on that, cool. Jonathan? And also, um, any well, another question is, what are the big um, healthcare and digital health and pharma conferences of the fall? Mm -hmm. So for just to finish off on the JP Morgan topic, um, I think the way to do JP Morgan if you're planning to go is to think at least several weeks ahead and make your invitations to people. So if it's January 8th this year, you wanna be inviting people December 8th uh, and getting all of your meetings lined up so you literally know who you're meeting with on each of those days and you make it your own conference essentially. If you are going for an educational purpose, I would pick one of the sub conferences and plant yourself for at least a day in a place where your buyers are. Uh, and that way you'll have a small conference inside of a bigger conference. Uh, so again, it will depend on who else is going and, and you'll pull your friends, I'm sure. And also look for the social agendas that get circulated by the PR companies online and, and share those so you can jump between the events. So that's how I think JP Morgan is done right. Um, in terms of other events, um, I do like this conference in Boston called um, AI and Pharma, which uh, is different from AI and Healthcare and Pharma Summit. It's called AI and Pharma Discovery, and the other one's AI and Pharma um, Clinical. Uh, and those are small conferences. So if you have particular interest in data, uh, I really like those. That's great. Um, 
So the last before we get to the main topic is personal notices. Uh, so um, tonight I'm actually hosting a drinks night at um, Rumba uh, at the Intercontinental Hotel in Boston, 630 to 830. Uh, and the theme is the, the All In podcast. We're each coming as one of the hosts um, uh, uh, for that uh, and, and chatting about tech, tech and finance uh, tonight. So that, that, that's an event. If you're Boston-based, you're welcome to join us there. Um, and then uh, the next uh, Digital Health Drinks Night in Boston is going to be August 10th, 5.30 to 8.30. And we chose to put it in the Metro West part of Boston in Lexington um, uh, because uh, we got a lot of feedback from people. We were doing them downtown. A lot of people live out Metro West, wanted us to do them out Metro West. So we're doing this one in August uh, in, out there. Um, so those are my next um, uh, sort of personal availabilities uh, with people. Welcome you to join us. And all of my upcoming events are on my Eventbrite page, which is uh, stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. Uh, and um, so, Jonathan, any any personal notices and availabilities? Yeah. So um, I had mentioned that I'm part of Social Impact Partners. We are doing an Innovation Olympics. We have teams from the six uh, top schools across the globe, including HBS, Dartmouth, IIT. We're gonna be announcing the winners of that in early September in time for Alzheimer's month. Um, and as I mentioned, since I'm a GP at their fund as well, uh, we have interest in venture partners who may want to help us in identifying the next generation of tech companies and healthy aging and brain health. So if you are uh, one of those, or if you're an invest, uh, an entrepreneur in this area, uh, please do reach out on LinkedIn. Uh, would be happy to chat more about that. That's great. So now we're getting to our main topic, which is solving the commercialization riddle, the trade-offs and steps needed for commercialization and how to create a winning plan. So John, why don't I just start with the most basic question, which is um, how do you solve the commercialization riddle and, and what's a winning plan? The answer is 42, Steve. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that, uh, you have to really look at the context of where you are. And so often I find that as companies have gotten a foothold in their uh, first market area and they said, well, great, we're really seeing some traction in the market that we wanted to dominate. They start to think, well, maybe we should be looking at multiple different healthcare verticals. And these are always these uh, classic Look at the employers, look at payers, look at health systems and providers, look at pharma companies. Should we partner up with other tech companies? Go, go D to C. Uh, and so, you know, in, in some respect, right, it's a strategic options um, evaluation that has to be done here. Uh, because ultimately, when you're making these kinds of existential decisions about the company, the more traction that you make in one of these segments, you start to organize, orient, all hiring and functions and engineering around serving whoever the dominant client is, right? So, you know, I, I think it's it's hard and I don't often see companies that win in uh, multiple segments, but there are some that are able to make that jump and, and, and be dominant in both because their platform lends itself to a similar kind of user. So, you know, I, I think that it's important to have a rather expansive view of that and do the exploration make informed decisions about that. Don't just get pulled down a path because ultimately we see right now a uh, almost hyper verticalization happening inside of digital health where you have a company that is extremely good at serving this specialist in this particular type of patient. And it's almost 
so narrow that while there's value to several people that would purchase that company and it, and it may expand, there's also platform companies that are across the horizontal that I think are receiving even higher valuations. And you know, we ought not to sort of cut off value simply because we were so myopically focused on serving just one client and owning it. It's purely defensible, but it's not very expandable. So I think that's an important thing. That, you know, as an executive, you come to that and you've got to be methodical in the way you evaluate those options. Uh, that. That's great. And so can you talk about um, executives thinking about what market segments uh, to get into and how to know that there's demand and they're likely to win uh, in that in that category? How, how does an executive think about those? How do you get the data? You know, why don't we pick as a starting point an area you're very familiar with, which is um, you could say pharma tech, which is tech companies selling into a pharma budget. That's typically the commercialization budget or the um, uh, the clinical budget uh, in pharma. Uh, but this would apply to, to all parts of digital health. Um, but how do they think about uh, the market segments to choose and, and you know, where they can, where there's demand, where they're likely to win? Yeah, no, great question. So I think the way a lot of farmers are thinking right now is that they need to uh, build competitive advantage internally. And so there's been a digital competency that's building inside of pharma. You now have organizations like Novartis and Pfizer and uh, Janssen that have people with uh, hundreds of people with the word digital or data in their title. It's becoming a fluency, a language within the organization. And, you know, generally as a best practice, you're starting to see people say, well, what is my data telling me about a particular product, which could be in clinical trials, it could be in a product launch, it could already be on the market and have uh, a competitive event such as a loss of exclusivity that's going to drive the price down once the competitor loses their patent. So all of these things are the things that have resultant billion dollar decisions in pharmas. And so the question becomes, if, if you solve a $500 million problem for them or a $100 million problem for them, what percent of that problem should they pay you to do that? Is it 1%? Is it 20%? Even if it's 1%, it's pretty attractive to do. And, and generally, if you're looking at pharma versus a payer, a payer, you're going to have to have a year of actuarial data and probably a year to 18 months of courtship to get that first payer deal, you know, two and a half years out. But a pharma, you might be able to get a deal between six and 12 or 18 months at the, at the longest, uh, depending on how much experience you already have uh, exemplifying your value to pharma. So I, I, think, I think it's a matter of you know, looking at data, looking at patient experience, um, looking at uh, clinical trials and saying, well, where do we add value that's really tangible? And how can we come to the table with data already for these pharma companies to show them that out of the box, we're already able to add value, even if they don't have their ducks in a row yet on their own value proposition or data. So I'm, I'm still bullish on pharma, but we do have to recognize that pharma has its own special purchasing cycles as well. And those typically run January to January. Um, so I'll stop there. So let me throw out some, some advice I've seen given to uh, young company leaders in digital health, so people who are leading software uh, and uh, and tech companies selling into the big budgets of healthcare, which are often that's like selling into pharma, selling into employers, payers, and selling into providers, hospitals. Um, so one of those pieces of advice, this was given by a leading uh, 
digital health venture fund before the downturn. Um, and they said, you can have, you can sell into two of those markets, but not more. So if, if you think about it, um, the CEO wants to sell into multiple markets because they don't know in advance what will be successful. So they have IP, they want to apply that IP in multiple markets and see which one takes off. But venture investors are getting that exposure to risk mitigation across their portfolio. So they often want to see a venture-backed company commit to having a hit product in one through one sales channel, selling into one of those areas. Um, of course, the, the CEO doesn't truly know in advance um, whether how big that hit's going to be and wants to diversify risk. So I heard that. And the second thing, this is from before the downturn, was to get to be a platform sale as soon as possible. So it's not always clear what a platform sale is, what, what, what platform means. It's one of those great fungible words. But a platform seems to mean that you have multiple products uh, on a single platform. Uh, 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 technology platform, um, so that they're drawing on the same database uh, and they and they 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 interoperate with each other. And that, that's one uh, term for. It. And then then you become a platform company, and you also have the potential for creating other products easily through this platform. You're not you're not starting from scratch. Um, and so now, what's happened with the downturn is that there's different advice, and the different advice is. Um, is get to profitability as soon as possible, and you probably can't raise as much money as before. Um, and so, what, what do you think of those old, two old pieces of advice? Um, and uh, you know, and are they out of date now? Uh, uh, and um, you know, what 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 do you uh, uh, what, what what should CEOs do? Yeah, I really, I, I do like that idea of being somewhat focused, right? You can't serve all masters and being good in two different market segments, I think is a reasonable goal uh, because very often there is a very big overlap. So for example, if you had already developed a platform that helps HCPs to make decisions based on precision medicine and genetics for cancer treatments, right? So you already basically solved a lot of the HCP and patient access and, and decision process uh, platform. And then you went to pharmas and pharma said, well, we've been trying to solve this problem as well. We'd like people to know that our drug is an option if you had this particular test result. That's a very synergistic two segments to be in where the strength in one creates attraction for the other. So I, I think that's fair advice, but you know, I'm always careful not to over extrapolate this, this old saying of, generally correct, but specifically wrong. It really does depend on what your particular platform does and then what the cohesive users in your supply chain would think of that. An adjacent user in this, an adjacent user in the supply chain that's just, you know, one layer removed that would be, find that very attractive is in the example I mentioned, that would be your ideal second segment. Any other um, thoughts about, uh, you know, if we, if we start with Pharma tech, uh, with, you know, which is selling into pharma's budgets. Um, any other thoughts about um, creating a winning plan for commercialization? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, with the AI trend that we're seeing, at least in the consumer usage right now, um, one of the big questions for pharma, and it's a, it's a it's a big question, is how can pharma leverage AI? 
in the context of everything from finding patients to uh, you know, clinical trials, uh, data analysis to commercial dashboards. Uh, you know, there's such applicability of AI across the pharma enterprise and to parse these many multimodal data sets that exist out there. I think the tricky part about that is figuring out how that actually works in healthcare. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people are exploring right now because they realize if they don't have those answers, they're actually not keeping up with what's happening in the marketplace and in the consumer mentality. Um, so I, I am very uh, bullish about that area, but a lot of that is going to be capacity building, deep strategic uh, capacity building. And, and so if you offer those kinds of products uh, and you make it easy for people to get the insights out, then ultimately you increase the price of your insight to something closer to the value of solving the problem instead of just providing data like utility and keeping the lights on. So I think that's a really great uh, approach is to be closer to where the quantifiable value is for pharma. So you mentioned a trend. I'd love to, I'd love to sort of double click on that, um, which is that uh, you know, if, if you talked to, um, uh, you know, to, vendors that sell into pharma before 2010. Um, uh, I think a lot of them would have said it's really hard to sell into pharma because pharma has a modernist concept of itself and likes to build things internally. So you would have situations like a big pharma spending a large amount of cash to hire people full time to build a CRM system um, on an Oracle database. Uh, and uh, then there was a there was a fundamental change in mindset uh, of big pharma, which was that Wall Street thought big pharma was growth until around this 2010 timeframe when pharma didn't deliver growth. And so then Wall Street said, you're no longer growth. So now you got to deliver cash flow. Uh, and so pharma then said, well, that we're going to collapse these, these empires, empire building that was going on inside of us. And we're going to outsource. And since then pharma outsourcing has been a major trend. This is a trend from outsourcing from 2010 or earlier onward is pharma saying, you know what? Sales organizations, we're gonna outsource what we can. Um, research, we're gonna outsource what we can. Um, and in doing so, instead of building proprietary uh, uh, empires internally, um, we're gonna wind up with, with, uh, with stronger cash flow because we're no longer a growth industry for investors. Uh, we're, we're a cash flow industry. Um, and so this, is, this has been great for the vendors selling into pharma. This has been great for Viva selling, you know, a, a, a world-class industry vertical CRM and document management. This has been great for Medidata and Komodo uh, and IMS selling their solutions into pharma. Instead of pharma saying we want, saying we want to do it ourselves, they're happy to pay top dollar to vendors to do it for them, um, even though they, but they might lose a theoretical proprietary edge. Um, and um, then, I've heard pharma is struggling to figure out digital um, uh, because they might not be able to hire the best coder. For example, the best coder might want to work for a software company in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, but it sounds like pharma is thinks digital is important and is bucking this trend with digital because they do want an internal digital capacity because they are hiring hundreds of people internally. Uh, is, is that is that threaten this pharma outsourcing trend that that uh, digital health vendors have been selling into, um, or are we going to see pharma doing both, building internally and also 
um, turning to to outside vendors uh, for pharma's digital strategy and digital products. Yeah, I think your assessment is very appropriate, Steve. I think it's going to be a world of both. I mean, there's a trend of moving back towards saying, well, where is our competitive advantage then if all we did was contract with, pick a consulting company, ZS to go do that for us as an N of one, right? Are we actually creating an evergreen capability internally? And I think, you know, that's where, if you look at organizations like Novartis, I think, they view data and digital as languages, as a fluency that people across the organization need to have. It needs to be part of the operating system of how they do business. So I, I think that's an enlightened point of view. It's certainly not the case across all the pharmas. I think you're talking about the top 10 to 20 percent of, uh, of, of Vanguard pharmas uh, that do that. You know, I, the other way to look at a pharma is uh, at the highest, largest level of pharma it's an investment holding company that invests in assets that yield returns. And most of those assets are molecules. And traditionally, pharma companies have not had a software model like a Microsoft because A, they don't know how to have continual innovation and residual value in software. And B, most tech revenue is a rounding error compared to what they can get for the margins of an on-patent drug. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that that comes down to their core competency. And to your point then, Steve, you know, there have been companies that have emerged that have provided the backbone infrastructure used by all different pharmas. And where the competitive advantage is for these pharmas is, well, what data sets do we have access to? How do we combine all of that? How are our insights built on top of these platforms as modules? So I think these platform companies will still be the railroad uh, that connects everybody, but what engine you're running, what your freight is, how many cars you have, how many conductors you have, all of that is really up to the pharma and is based on an as-needed basis of what types of drugs they're launching and how they're using data or patient experience or caregiver experience to differentiate in the market. That's great. And for our audience, now's a good time to ask your questions. If you have questions uh, about commercialization issues, um, you could ask them of uh, John and me and we'll, we'll respond to them. Uh, just type them in the group chat. Um, so uh, when, I, when I think about, uh, uh, so something I talk to investors about is a view on the richness of budgets for buying tech in the different um, enterprise budgets of healthcare. So I thought I would run through these and just get your reaction. I'd love to hear if you're seeing something different than I'm seeing. Um, sure. So the, the first area I'll mention is, um, uh, is uh, digital health benefits. So this is software and tech companies selling software and tech products into the employer benefits budget. Um, mm. And in this sector, and this is, this is, uh, employer spending on companies like Livongo for diabetes uh, or benefit focus for benefit administration automation. Um, and here, the budget here is very strong and fundamentally buyers, the benefit leader at the large enterprise believes that the products are working, that's good news, and they're willing to spend the same or more on them over the next two years. So that's good news. But there's a problem for innovators, which is that uh, the sector's consolidating and it's demanding more. There's an arms race, they're demanding more from innovators. So it's harder to enter as a new company with a point solution in that space. 
Also, if we do go into a recession, then employers change their priorities. They gain leverage over employees. They don't have to spend on great benefits. The, the, the custom chef gets fired um, during a recession uh, and they can pull back on some of these benefits and, and not choose to buy the new innovative benefit. So that's the digital health benefits sector for innovators. The next is, um, is uh, payers. And so payers have a programmatic budget where they buy things like Teladoc and Livongo, but they also have a budget for tech, uh, like claims administration, for example. That's companies like Cotivity and Novalon um, uh, and others. Um, and here, I think, you know, the budget here is not very strong. Um, and there's a big disappointment because there was a hope with COVID that um, payers felt rich during COVID because they were getting premiums in and they were not spending dollars out on care. So they got rich. There was a hope that they would spend all that money on tech. And the verdict is in and they did not spend all that money on tech. Um, and so, uh, but there's some interesting areas there with helping uh, payers, health plans uh, score better on HEDIS uh, star ratings and some other interesting areas where tech can, can offer something. So there's some small areas that are hot in general, though uh, it's, it's tough to sell into that budget. The next budget is consumer digital health. Uh, and here, this is consumers spending consumer dollars out of their own pocket. This is companies like Fitbit or Peloton or Noom or part of CDS or that sort of thing. Um, and here, um, you know, this is this is a very unpredictable area where consumers are spending consumer dollars today. Um, it's very hard to uh, what I've been hearing is it's harder and harder to reach consumers because to reach consumers, consumers are going on apps. The apps are owned by a small number of big tech companies like Facebook or Google, um, and they're charging, you know, full full freight to reach consumers. So, so it's very hard to build a company reaching consumers affordably in consumer digital health. Um, the next area is, is providers, so the provider tech. So this is software and tech companies selling software and tech products and services into providers. And here, and there's two sides to this, there's the clinical budget and the financial budget. And the clinical budget is like EMRs and the financial budget is like revenue cycle management. And so in this area, Hospitals feel really poor right now. They feel they were they feel like they were clobbered. They never feel rich, but they felt like they were clobbered by COVID. Uh, and they also have big long-term contracts with the big major EMR vendors uh, like uh, Epic and, and Cerner. Um, and so uh, it's it's just really hard to persuade them that you've got an issue that's important enough for their CIO or their head of radiology or their emergency department to buy your product uh, right now. Whereas on the revenue cycle management side, there actually, there's a lot tech has to offer. And in general, when tech offers something in RCM, it has a big financial return associated with it. So that side's looking up, selling to the revenue cycle management side is looking up. So providers are a mixed picture. Then there's pharma tech, and that's software and tech companies selling into the pharma uh, tech budgets. Um, and typically there's the clinical side that's like, uh, Medidata selling CRM automation, and there's the commercial side that's like Viva selling, I'm sorry, Meditech was selling clinical trial automation, and Viva is selling CRM automation to the commercial side. And in, in today's environment, pharma is feeling rich and spendy. <laughs> so pharma, so this is a great area to sell into in general. So that, and then finally, there's there's 
um, prescription digital therapeutics and diagnostics and medical devices. Um, and this is an area that um, has, for prescription digital therapeutics, has really struggled. There has not been a hit product in prescription digital therapeutics. There are usability issues, there's IP issues. So, that, that, so prescription digital therapeutics is a, is a troubled area right now. Um, people really trying to figure out how to get how to make it work. Um, but then there's diagnostics monitoring, and, and here you, digital has a great opportunity to make better products at lower prices and and beat out um, the incumbent uh, diagnostic and medical device companies there. So, so that, that that's a that's a lot that's in around the world. And what I'm wondering is when you think of spendiness of enterprise buyers on tech, forward looking for the next two years. Are you seeing similar things or I, you know, I'd love to improve this view, any areas that stand out as being good opportunities or any signals that the budgets are trending differently than I mentioned? I mean, I generally agree with what you said, Steve. I think that was a nice characterization. Um, you know, I, I think we're seeing a little bit more activity on the remote monitoring side of things uh, because some of the codes have come out. So, you know, I, I do think if you can get reimbursement um, and the code already exists, you're not going out there and creating a new code, uh, then you have an opportunity to pull together a business and, uh, you know, thus far less competition, but I think the competition will be coming soon. Um, but so I, I think that is a great area to be in. Um, I think that when you look across some of the other ones you mentioned, you know, I think that HR benefits managers, um, they rely heavily on the Willis Towers Watsons of the world and Aon to sort of do the research to tell them what they should buy and get all the filtration done first, because I think they're just inundated. Uh, that's not to say you, if you found someone who was very focused uh, as a seller into employer markets with an existing Rolodex that they couldn't go and get the person at Google who they already know to look at that. Um, and, and you could line up a few of them that way. But I do think that um, I, I, would, I would be probably not as um, negative on that simply because I think what we learned coming out of COVID is that if we are in an environment where maybe everyone's not back in the office five days a week, but maybe it's three and a half or four, then there is a need to still support people in some way, at the very least on mental health. I mean, that's just called high performance. So I think there are some of these benefits that are probably not going away. And to some extent, the use of the office uh, for what it, uh, you know, is good for, uh, it has sort of expanded out now into a distributed workforce. Um, you know, I, I think to the extent companies are helpful in digital health with uh, keeping the uh, uh, employee set A happy and B healthy, that's probably not going away. Um, so I'm still bullish on that. Um, you know, I, I think that it's a data game now and the data is getting a lot more sophisticated around payers. I think there's more expectations true in pharma as well. Um, so upping the data game on that, uh, you know, that's, that's just going to continue to happen infrastructure wise. Uh, so I think those are the big opportunity areas where I, I'm probably a little bit more bullish uh, on some of those that you mentioned. That's great. And, and for our audience, um, you know, now, now's the time to throw up some questions for us. Um, uh, and uh, so any other thoughts, if you're, if you're thinking about, so our audience, uh, a lot of our audience is young digital health company leaders, uh, software and tech companies selling software and tech into one of the big budgets of healthcare, perhaps with an emphasis on pharma tech, uh, because you're coming out of the, the, the pharma sector. Any more thoughts on uh, what's different now in terms of 
um, selling a product into pharma uh, and um, making a successful launch of selling a product in, in, into pharma or other parts of, of healthcare. Are you asking me, Steve, or the audience generally? Oh, uh, you for this one, yeah. Yeah, can you just repeat the question one more time for me, please? Sure, and any other thoughts uh, focusing on a successful launch of product? Um, yeah. So any other advice to our audience on launching, if you're, a, if you're the CEO of a young digital health company selling into pharma, that's the, that's the pharma tech sector, any thoughts on what it takes to have a successful launch of a product to pharma today that might be different from the past? Yeah, yeah, I think that the key is having a very clear launch plan. And I think a lot of people go through launch and they say, well, we made the product, um, but the product is on one cycle that is codependent on the cycle of uh, sales. And that is codependent on how you package that strategically and your distribution, how you go to market and resource that. So I think all of the above have to be in play and that plan needs to be rather comprehensive uh, as you're going to market. Uh, certainly, if you're talking about pharma, they're doing that level of launch planning two years out for their assets. So being somewhat together as well on the digital health side of things, particularly if you're pursuing a particular asset class, like a core competency in cancer, for example, you're gonna to want to be dating, so to speak, with a lot of these pharma companies and, and finding those that might even be willing to co-develop with you on a pilot basis, as so many of them like to do, because that's the pharma model, right, is stage gate model. That's not the model for digital health company, obviously, because it's not binary. There's, there is value no matter what. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, particularly if you're developing a competitive advantage from perspective of data or patient experience um, related to a particular therapeutic or disease area, um, you've definitely got to invest in that area. And as you're making that investment, have a very clear commercial plan for how you're going to make money for your investors doing that. Uh, particularly if you have any sort of approval that needs to happen uh, along the way, you're going to want to make sure that um, there is a there there in terms of order of magnitude value for your investors and also for your pharma companies. Um, that that's great. Uh, so I'm gonna um, uh, I'm gonna uh, depart a little bit from the overall theme of commercialization and creating winning plan and just ask, what do you think is going on with digital therapeutics today? So unfortunately, a few weeks ago we saw a pair. Uh, which was try trying to sell its assets, uh, you know, then just um, literally went went bankrupt. Um, and uh, some of the companies, digital therapeutics that chose to go public, often through a SPAC, are trading at quite low levels. Um, uh, and yet, nevertheless, um, the modality of software seems to have a lot of promise. It has a lot of promise in CBT, in neuro, uh, in other areas where you would not expect small molecule or large molecule or gene therapy to be able to help much. Nevertheless, the software modality as CBT or as other things seems to, to offer a lot. There's an incredible element to it, which is that software is often on a, an element of it is on a smartphone, which is always on, always within arm's reach, always up to date, always connected, always personalized, uh, can be gamified, um, uh, can do passive monitoring that was never available in software, yeah, uh, sorry, in pharma before. Um, and so, uh, but, but it's stumbled, but digital therapies have stumbled a little bit. They've stumbled in with IP, IP protection is weak. It looks like medical device IP protection, not like, uh, pharma molecular uh, IP protection. They've stumbled with usability. Their products are harder to use than taking a pill. Um, 
Uh, so what, and investors are now shying away from digital th therapeutics after having formerly embraced them. Hmm. So what, what do you think is going on is, and is the future of the next two years of digital therapeutics? Hmm. Well, I think the exception is the rule. It's impossible until somebody does it. And there's a lot of new ventures in this area and there are going to be some very good winners. Um, you know, I, I think that we're starting to see some great stuff in neuroelectric or neuromodulation, for example, that never existed before. And so, you know, it is entirely possible to become a person who defines a category. Um, but I, you know, and I remain very bullish on device because that's a very consolidated industry with a particular set of buyers uh, and tremendously excellent uh, profit margins. So much so that remember when Obama had to tax the windfall profit of the medical device industry, I think it was nine years ago or however many years ago, um, whenever Obama was president, uh, you know, that, that was unheard of. That was like uh, taxing um, Exxon for the gas windfall profit. So I am still bullish on device uh, stru structurally. That said, um, I was not really surprised about Pear. I, I couldn't quite figure out why they wanted to go after that initial market of uh, addiction, because I think that's a very difficult, very fragmented market with very small buyers generally, um, and very few drugs that work in that area. And so much of it is due to behavioral and belief systems, nutrition and trauma. So I, I never quite got that. I did think some of their other stuff around depression later in the pipeline was quite good. And I certainly applaud them for going out there and being one of the first to get the regulatory piece and the funding aligned for this as a category defining company. But I don't think that they started with a market that was going to catapult them. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that we need more companies like that, but it's a classic case of where the first company to make the move is not necessarily the company that reaps all the profits. And that should be a, uh, uh, a good sign as well to entrepreneurs to say you can come in, come up with a better model, cherry pick to, to serve the right client and the right use case and still build a very successful company. Um, but you've got to really be focused initially to make sure that first market works. Mm -hmm. that, that's great. Uh, well, good. Well, so I think that's uh, we're at the, the bottom of the hour. Um, so any, any final thoughts for our audience on, um, you know, sort of, uh, developing a winning plan in in the current year. Um, so uh, before we wind up, uh, John, any 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 just wrap up remarks from you for our audience? I just uh, I applaud the work that entrepreneurs are doing in digital health. I applaud the work that venture capitalists are doing in supporting them in this area. I, you know, I think that. We're in it for the long run. We're in it for the right reasons here. And we're in it to see patients be happier. And, you know, when we see our family members living longer, healthier lives, I mean, that's the same result that we're producing in what we do. So I think that's a great reason that many, so many people are in digital health. And so end of the day, it's about the patient, but it's also, you know, to have great patient impact, you've got to build a successful company that's going to be around a while and it's going to have scale. And that's what we do at Ivy Tree Advisors. So if anyone's interested in that, having follow-up discussions, I'm more than happy to chat with folks. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Olson at Ivy Tree Advisors, or catch me on uh, Twitter or via email, jolson at ivytreeadvisors.com. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, John. Um, so you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with host Stephen Wardell. Our thanks to our guest, Jonathan Olson. 
Jonathan is the managing partner at Ivy Tree Advisors, where he consults the companies about strategy, commercialization, and product launch. Um, our next show is in two weeks on Wednesday, August 9th, uh, from 4 to 5.30. The topic is success with sales channel partnerships, how to approach sales channel partnerships and make them work. Our guest is Jay Rugani, a partner at Hendrickson Horowitz, um, who was formerly head of partnerships at Flatiron Health. Um, for our Boston audience, uh, I'd love to see you tonight at 6.30 um, uh, at Rumba Bar and Restaurant in the Intercontinental Hotel in downtown Boston, outdoors on the water, um, for our, um, our, our, our drinks night around an unofficial July all-in podcast meetup. Uh, so thanks very much, and I'll see you all next time. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks, Jonathan.